This course isn't black or white, it's a whole lot of gray. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Anish Anandram, and this is the seventh episode of A Whole Lot of Grey, where we're going to be discussing how we can better facilitate the process of promoting international peace as well as international security. Because let's be real, God knows that the current system does not work for anybody. So I want to start by providing you guys with a little bit of context. How did the international system as we currently know it come into existence? Let's rewind to September 2nd, 1945. This was the day that the Second World War officially came to an end. 80 million casualties, $1.35 trillion, and an unimaginable amount of misery later, the world was in desperate need of an era of peace and stability. And lo and behold, a month later, the UN was established, which was intended to be a League of Nations 2.0. Now, as you guys know, the League of Nations was set up after the First World War to promote international peace. As you also know, the fact that there was a Second World War shows that this League of Nations thing didn't work out quite as planned. Now, you guys might ask, even post-1945, there aren't too many incidents that this international system has successfully resolved. And I'll tell you why. A big reason for this is that the international institutions that are actually tasked with promoting these global changes are grossly ineffective. So an international institution, quick definition here, is an institution where three or more countries work together to resolve issues that pertain to all the member states of that institution. And if you're wondering, this is a paraphrased definition from the Global Energy Network Institute. Some prominent examples of international institutions are like the UN or the World Health Organization, so on and so forth. And I'm going to be using the term international institutions and international organizations interchangeably throughout this episode, so please don't get confused. And I'm going to be largely focusing on the UN. And the only reason for this is the UN is the largest, oldest, and most prominent of the international organizations. So this is a quick preface that These comments that I'm making throughout the course of the episode apply to international organizations on the whole, and they're not exclusive to the UN, even though the UN is going to be our subject of focus or our main subject of focus for this episode. So let's jump right into the data. What do people think of the UN or what do people think of international organizations? A Gallup poll found that as of 2018, only 34% of global respondents believed that international organizations did more good than harm, that largely they are ineffective and distrustful. Keep in mind, this is way down from the 55% who thought they did more good than harm in 1953, which was eight years after the UN was founded. So it's quite possible to conclude that Whatever global progress has happened today in 2020 has happened despite the existence of these institutions and not because of it. So why is this the case? Why are these institutions plagued with inefficacies? Let's explore three main segments on how we can potentially make the UN and other international organizations more effective and useful to the global community. The first segment is structural reform of the institutions themselves. The second segment is having more binding power 
for UN peacekeeping forces. And the third and final segment is making international law and the legal system more binding. I'm going to go over each segment in detail, uh, starting with the first one, structural reform of international organizations themselves. Before we talk about why the UN and other international organizations need structural reform, let's go over how they came to be, the existing structure of the UN, and what its current problems are. So following the Second World War, in October 1945, the United Nations was set up. Now, this was positive because it signaled the global intent for cooperation as opposed to competition in the geopolitical arena. But we all know that intent only goes a certain distance if it's not followed through by action. So now you must ask, why the lack of action in the UN? I'll tell you why. There's a multitude of reasons for this, so I'll try focusing on the important ones. The United Nations General Assembly, as you guys know, is the largest wing of the UN. And this committee has delegates and representatives from all 193 UN member states. So while it's a great forum which allows for international dialogue and deliberation, there is a glaring structural weakness which prevents it from truly affecting any sort of change or laws. And a lot of the critics of the UN say that the UN is a talk shop, not a do shop. And the reason for this is as follows. The UN General Assembly doesn't have the power to pass legislation that is binding or mandatory for its member states. What does this mean? Well, because the first article of the UN Charter promises sovereignty and autonomy to every member state, the UN technically cannot interfere with domestic laws of UN member countries. So ultimately, every resolution that comes out of the General Assembly simply serves as mere recommendations or suggestions for these countries, not actual binding laws that these countries need to follow up on. And the best example for this is Resolution 1761. Resolution 1761 was passed to condemn South African apartheid. Uh, for those of you who don't know, apartheid was a form of segregation in South Africa where the black population was discriminated against by the largely Caucasian South African government at the time. Now, while apartheid was you know, rightfully condemned around the world, Resolution 1761 was passed in November 1962. To put things in context, apartheid actually came to an end only in 1994, which is more than 30, which is more than three decades later. Sorry, that's 32 years later. And keep in mind that the UN was formed in 1945, which means they took 17 years just to pass a resolution which condemned apartheid. They took 17 years just to pass a resolution to say, oh, hey, you know what? Apartheid is bad. Now, you know what? You can make the argument that this resolution made South Africa an international pariah. The reality is it led to no meaningful change. Dr. Alex Thompson, who is a US foreign policy professor at Coventry University, suggested that bilateral relations between the US and South Africa actually improved during the, you know, between 1962 and 1994, which is during the period where apartheid was condemned by the UN when they passed that resolution 1761, but apartheid was still legal in South Africa. So just so you guys know, the big companies like UBS, Barclays, ExxonMobil, British Petroleum, 
IBM, Chrysler, Ford, General Motors, these American behemoth corporations all continued to operate in South Africa in between 1962 and 1994. And CIA archives further suggest that the South African Nationalist Party at the time, which was, you know, the party that promoted apartheid, they had these anti-communist ideals, which set the tone for a great bilateral partnership between the U.S. and South Africa, because as we all know at the time, America was battling communism. So this is evidence that regardless of, you know, these symbolic resolutions passed by the U.N. General Assembly, states will continue acting in their own selfish interests as long as it's convenient for them to do so. And this is best evidenced by the U.S. and South Africa during apartheid. Now, every wing of the United Nations, not just the General Assembly, has purely this power to recommend and to suggest to its member states. Interestingly enough, only one wing in the UN actually has binding power, which is the Security Council. But that doesn't mean that the Security Council is this highly effective organization either. Five countries in the Security Council have the ability to veto resolutions proposed in the Security Council meaning that a potentially binding resolution would be deemed null and void upon the veto. So why is this the case? Why do these countries, how do these countries have, you know, the five veto powers? I'll give you some context. So the US, the UK, China, Russia, and France are the five veto countries. And they were arguably the five most powerful nations at the time of the Second World War, but that's not the only reason they have the powers. Mr. Francis Wilcox, who was the United States delegation advisor at the time, said that the big five, as he calls it, you know, these five countries with the veto powers, the big five stated during negotiations, either there exists a United Nations charter where we have the veto powers or no UN charter at all. So we see that even the very origin story of the veto powers in the UN is rooted in these powerful countries preserving their own self-interest, not promoting international peace and security. Now you guys might ask, does it play out this way in practice? You be the judge of that. The three most recent resolutions proposed by the UN Security Council have all been concerned with the following, and this is directly sourced from the UN website. So the first two resolutions, as in the, the two most recent resolutions proposed by the UN Security Council, concern providing humanitarian access to 11 million Syrians displaced by the war in Syria. Uh, two resolutions were proposed on this. And the second one is rather the third resolution. The third most recent resolution deals with providing humanitarian assistance and interventions to help Venezuela, where currently, if you are unaware, people have no access to food, no access to water, no access to basic rations. And all three of these resolutions were proposed in 2019, last year, and on all three occasions, both China as well as Russia vetoed these resolutions. So this is clear evidence that in this case, in these cases rather, China and Russia prioritized their own geopolitical self-interest over humanitarian needs. Because let's be real, right? Syria and Venezuela, regardless of what your politics is, we can all agree they, they've gone through hell, right? People have, there have no food, have no water. So providing humanitarian assistance to, you know, these countries which have gone through a nightmare, you would think should not be, you know, a contentious call 
But the fact that China and Russia vetoed them shows that, wow, you know, like countries are always countries with veto powers are always going to abuse the veto powers to focus on their own geopolitical interests because, you know, they wouldn't benefit from humanitarian assistance being provided to Syria and Venezuela, as opposed to promoting the peace and stability and promoting any sort of humanitarian help to these countries that greatly need it. So we see that the veto powers are merely a tool used to preserve strategic interests by powerful countries. Another fun fact, in the last three decades, the United States and Russia have both used their veto powers more than 80 times. That's insane. That's just an, an insane statistic. And in total, Russia has used its veto power more than, you know, the US, the UK, France, and China. It's used it 115 times, if you were wondering, which is, again, just an absurd number of times to veto resolutions that more often than not try and help people. Anyway, countries like China and Russia are a great segue to what I believe is perhaps the single most needed structural reform in the UN. The UN official website talks about how democracy is a core value of the UN. And while the UN does not explicitly advocate for any one model of governance over another, they do explicitly state that they believe that democracy and, quote, liberal democratic values, end quote, are the best ways to promote international cooperation and security. Further, the opening words of the UN Charter are, we the people. So clearly, this shows its intent on being viewed as and functioning as a liberal democratic institution. And you know what? Let's be fair to it. For the most part, it does try and operate that way. It grants its member states both the right to vote as well as the right to dissent, which are both key elements of the democratic model of governance. But despite all of this, we see instances of the UN deviating from its promise of democracy in its origin story. Why is democratic India, the largest democracy in the world, by the way, which has more than 15% of the global population and over 70 million Poor individuals, 70 million individuals below the poverty line, uh, which, again, fun fact, India has more people below the poverty line than any single country on planet Earth. So why is this country not a member of the Security Council? Do you not think a country that is so densely populated, a country that is democratic and abides by the liberal democratic values of the UN, do you not think they should be included in the Security Council to, you know, show the global inclusivity and representation of an organization such as the Security Council. And we can get into, you know, like what India could have done better to be a part of the Security Council, but that's just a parallel debate altogether. The fact remains is that the UN never made any active effort to include us, neither nor did any of these five countries. Anyway, so the fact remains this, that the five veto nations in the Security Council today were the victors of the Second World War in 1945, while India was still a British colony. I mean, we got independence only in 1947, two years after. So the result of this was the composition of the most important wing of the UN, the only wing that can pass binding legislation, is not globally inclusive, nor is it globally representative of the geopolitical environment we live in today. Most importantly, however, the composition of the UN Security Council is antithetical to the values of freedom, liberty, and democracy enshrined in the UN's own charter and its whole We the People preamble narrative. 
So how can we expect to solve issues that plague the world's most vulnerable and densely populated if the UN does not have any adequate representation from, you know, South Asia or Africa? So I have two big focal points of structural reform for the UN. And the first is this, that the UN should ensure that all its member states act in accordance with the liberal and democratic nature of the United Nations. As we've gone over, you know, in these 15 minutes or so that the UN proclaims to be a liberal and democratic institution. It allows the right to reply, the right to vote, the right to dissent. And it has a preamble that promotes a democratic framework, starting with we the people. But having this preamble means nothing if the institutional setup and actions are antithetical to that democratic cause. So the UN should actively try and ensure that its member states actively abide by the liberal and democratic institutional principles, not just make these hollow declarations. I'll give you an example. The UNHCR, or the UN High Commission on Refugees, is the UN's wing on dealing with refugees and displaced people. Interestingly enough, Saudi Arabia is a member of this committee. And if you just Google Saudi Arabia Yemen exodus, as I'm you know, speaking right now, you're going to see that Saudi Arabia is a massive reason for the refugee exodus in Yemen. And they've also refused to take in refugees fleeing war and terrorism from parts of the Middle East and North Africa. So I think it's a bit rich, right, that Saudi Arabia is part of such a commission. And Saudi Arabia's delegation to this commission is representative of the Saudi Arabian monarchy. And they use their privileges granted to them by the UN. So they use their privileges granted to them under a liberal and democratic setup to avoid living up to its responsibilities. Which is why I always say this, that giving authoritarian states a platform in a democratic institution is purely a win for the autocratic state. And not only is it a loss for the UN, but for also for the rest of the world. Now, since democracy promotion, as we've highlighted, is in the UN's preamble, the UN ought to raise the bar for what it takes to become a member state. The state should have at least three of the following tenets, and this is my proposition. Uh, fun fact, these three tenets, which I'm about to list out, are the three vital tenets of being a proper and functioning democracy, as per Dr. Farid Zakaria. So the three tenets are as follows. The first, you need to have a civilian control of the military, which, you know, eliminates all these military dictatorships. B is having a free press. And C is having free and fair elections, which eliminates countries like Saudi Arabia, North Korea, so on and so forth. And by having these three criteria, not only do you force UN member states to, you know, act, actually practice what they preach, but also ensures that, hey, you know what, like this country is not only coming to the UN and saying one thing, but it actually walks the talk back home because they're not authoritarian. They have civilian control of the military. They have a free press and they have free and fair elections. The reality is this is not the case right now. The reality is like the UN has a ton of member states which don't fulfill these three criteria. And you see how problematic it is. You see how problematic it is that these authoritarian countries and these monarchies abuse the privileges granted to them in a democratic setup and have no obligation, no accountability to actually follow through with their own obligations and you know responsibilities to the international community. So I think it's vital that the UN kind of reform its membership criteria. Like, you know, if you want to be a part of the UN, these are the three things you got to do. And I said there are two big focal points of structural reform, I'm getting to the second one, which is veto reformation. So let's be real. We've established that, you know what, these five countries, 
the US, the UK, France, China, Russia abuse their veto powers and they use it as a tool to preserve their own interests. But while we've established that, it is impossible that these five countries are ever going to cede or give up their veto powers. Why would they, right? Let's be real. However, as I did mention earlier, we can at least mitigate the veto abuse if we make the UN Security Council as a whole more globally inclusive and globally representative. And here's why that's important. The three biggest and longest running bilateral conflicts in the world today currently are the first, India-Pakistan, the second, Israel-Palestine, and the third is North Korea and South Korea. Interestingly, none of the above countries have any sort of permanent representation in the Security Council. So how is it fair that five unrelated nations get to potentially veto resolutions concerning the above three conflicts without any representation from the, you know, above countries where these three conflicts are actually arising? If the UN truly wants to be able to promote peace and to promote stability, some sort of veto reformation in the UN Security Council is required, at least by making the Security Council more globally representative and inclusive by expanding the number of permanent members in the Security Council. Right now, these five veto, veto countries are the only permanent members of the Security Council. So unless we have a reformation in this veto-centric system, and unless we make it more globally inclusive, globally representative, we're not going to have countries like India and Palestine and Israel and Pakistan, countries where a lot of this turbulence exists, we're not going to have them at the table. So I think it's pretty ludicrous that you have a bunch of stakeholders at the table making decisions about the most vulnerable, most volatile regions on the planet without having any sort of representation from those parts of the world. And as we've seen before, without this reformation, the five veto powers will continually use these states that are embroiled in bilateral conflicts as mere pawns to further their own geopolitical gain in this game of geopolitical chess that they're playing. And uh, that brings me to the end of my first segment of the three segments in, you know, how we can reform international system and make it work better for all of us. And the second segment I'd like to touch on is the binding power of peacekeeping forces. So a quick definition again, peacekeeping forces by the UN is an army which operates as a unique and dynamic instrument developed by the organization as a way to help countries torn by conflict in order to create the conditions for lasting peace. So fun fact with some numbers, there are currently around 110,000 odd peacekeeping soldiers that constitute the UN peacekeeping forces. But I want to ask this question. Does it really live up to the mission statement of, and I quote, being a way to help countries torn by conflict to create the conditions for lasting peace? I have two big concerns with the UN peacekeeping forces currently. One is the real lack of jurisdictional authority to effect change in violent or turbulent areas. And the second is massive sexual abuse and assault that are conducted by the UN peacekeeping forces. So I want to tackle the first one. The United Nations states that peacekeepers monitor and observe peace processes in post-conflict areas and assist ex-combatants in implementing the peace agreements they may have signed. So in English, that means that their purpose is primarily to serve as a liaison of sorts between the UN 
and the respective countries which are you know going through conflict or have just finished going through conflict or rebel groups so on and so forth so this ability to purely monitor and observe peacekeeping processes without having the requisite jurisdictional authority to do anything about it doesn't go a long way in affecting peaceful change in violent areas the washington post states how the un entered liberia in 2003 after the fall of president charles taylor in a bid to promote peace in a highly volatile region where rebel groups were running rampant and they remained there until march 2018 so 2003 2018 that's the better part of 15 years but what happened was this effective the united states department of state observed an increase of 36% in violent crime in that 15 year span in liberia and a major reason for this is attributed to the peacekeeping's lack of jurisdiction as well as their lack of essential weaponry to promote peace so why you guys are probably thinking why don't the peacekeepers have the jurisdictional authority or weapons to promote peace and stability and again as we mentioned early on in the case it's the argument of sovereignty and every country is guaranteed sovereignty as protected by the first article of the UN charter so my point to the sovereignty argument is this while a state sovereignty is sacrosanct and of course it must be respected i think it's important to note one thing is that the UN is not randomly deploying peacekeeping forces right the UN will not deploy a peacekeeping force to a country unless there's massive turbulence and instability in the country to begin with so in that case the un must make it abundantly clear if international intervention is required in your country owing to its volatility a degree of your country's sovereignty has to be ceded because what's the alternative you preserve sovereignty while the state spirals into chaos because the un peacekeepers who are tasked with promoting peace don't have the jurisdictional authority to actually do anything about it so let's so let's not act as if the un prioritizes a state's sovereignty so much more than the interests of you know its most powerful countries uh, again this is evidenced by the american invasion of iraq in 2003 when the us got the un to vote for america to enter iraq uh despite the fact that on the premise that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction despite the fact that it was later proved that he did not have weapons of mass destruction so let's not act as if the UN has always prioritizing people's sovereignty and i think a good case to not prioritize sovereignty is like i said you make it abundantly clear that hey listen if you need our help to solve your problems if you need our help to solve your violence you have to let us arrest people you have to give us jurisdictional authority you have to give us useful weapons you have to let us actually do stuff instead of acting as a mere liaison all right otherwise like i said the alternative is you can preserve sovereignty but the country will continue to spiral into chaos now harvard's car center estimates that since 1946 a year after the un was formed more than 2/3 of all un peacekeeping missions have either seen a stagnation or an increase in violence in the areas that they've been sent to and this increase in violence however is not exclusively because of the lack of jurisdiction which is a great segue to the second concern with the peacekeeping forces which is the widespread sexual assault and abuse conducted by these peacekeepers so human rights watch stated that this is actually an epidemic among peacekeeping nations since 1996 alone 
more than 45% of peacekeeping missions worldwide have endured some form of abuse and assault of vulnerable locals at the hands of the UN peacekeepers. Human Rights Watch also surveyed 2,500 Haitian women in 2018, and more than 10% of the respondents said that they had fathered children with peacekeepers as a result of, you know, rape and abuse from the UN peacekeepers. So, I mean, that is disgusting enough as is, but here's where it gets problematic. The first is that peacekeepers, as we've established, have not only been unsuccessful at promoting peace, but also go out of their way to assault and abuse vulnerable locals. B, while the UN explicitly states that peacekeepers must never abuse positions of vulnerability, there's no way to actually get justice for those harmed. If a Haitian woman gets raped by, say, a French UN peacekeeper, there's no way that the Haitian woman can actually get justice. And the reason for this is, again, because of the immensely frustrating machinery of international organizations. While it is a UN peacekeeping force, the allegations of assault and abuse must be resolved by the host country of said soldiers. For example, if a French peacekeeper is accused of rape and assault, the French government is the only entity that can prosecute him, not any wing of the United Nations. So while they're deployed by the United Nations, they're not accountable to the United Nations. And that's a really bad combination. So this is a problem I can think of solving only in one of three ways. One, you have a greater presence of women soldiers and women peacekeepers. And obviously that's not going to eliminate the problem, but you would be interested to know that women currently constitute only 20% of peacekeepers globally. Uh, the second thing I think we could potentially do to solve this problem is, you know, greater pressure obviously has to be exerted on countries that deploy these soldiers to undertake swift proceedings against those accused. And the third one is you get rid of this frustrating bureaucratic semantic and make those soldiers accountable to the UN themselves, and then you can prosecute them under international law. But this is actually a great segue to the third and final segment of this episode, which is reforming international law and the international legal system as a whole. What does the international legal system look like currently? There's three main factions. The first is the International Court of Justice, which hears civil disputes between two countries. The second is the International Criminal Court, which prosecutes criminal individuals. And the third is the Arbitration Tribunal of the United Nations that arbitrates regional disputes. So I'll first walk you through the International Court of Justice and the Arbitration Tribunal as, you know, they focus more on interstate interaction and disputes. And let me walk you through two landmark cases uh, concerning both these two organizations involving two of the most powerful countries in the world. In 1986, the International Court of Justice ruled in favor of Nicaragua in Nicaragua versus the United States over illegal mining activities and rebel support off the coast of Nicaragua that was carried out by the United States. In 2016, the Arbitration Tribunal of the UN ruled in favor of the Philippines in Philippines versus China, stating that China had no historical rights to any land or territory of the South China Sea. And for those of you guys who don't know, like China's been building a bunch of illegal islands in the South China Sea, went to court, uh, and the Arbitration Tribunal ruled against China. Now, in the case of the former, the first case, Nicaragua versus the US, 
U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Jean Kirkpatrick, said this of the International Court of Justice. He said that it's a semi-legal, semi-judicial, semi-political body, which nations sometimes accept and sometimes don't. This then went to the U.N. General Assembly, where member states had to vote on whether they believed the U.S. should comply with the verdict or not. And all member states, except Israel, the United States, and El Salvador, voted against the U.S. But despite this, the U.S. chose not to pay any sort of fine or reparations to Nicaragua, and they had no legal obligation to do so, because as we've established at the very start of this case, the U.N. General Assembly resolutions are not binding, they are merely suggestions. So despite the fact that every country voted against America, except three, America still didn't have to do, like, pay any sort of reparations to Nicaragua. Now, in the latter case, which is Philippines versus China, uh, in the latter case, which is Philippines versus China, China also chose to reject the arbitration's ruling on the South China Sea. And since then, they've only accelerated construction of islands in the region. And in both cases, the U.S. and China could get away with it because, like we've said, these are not binding resolutions or binding rulings. So we see yet another example of international law not applying to the most powerful states in the world. The U.S. and China are literally the two most powerful countries on the planet. So now my recommendation on how to solve this is as follows. And please note that I'm not claiming that this is how we can guarantee compliance to international law from countries like America and China. What I am saying is this, that without the following steps taking place, compliance from states like the US and China with international law would be impossible. So my recommendation is this, that in addition to the structural reforms pertaining to the UN setup and the UN charter, the funding structure needs to dramatically change as well. Former Labor Secretary of the U.S. and current economics professor at the University of California at Berkeley, Dr. Robert Reich, says this, that no matter what the organization is, follow the money to truly understand them. And this holds true for the U.N. and international legal system as well. Currently, the International Court of Justice is financed by the Secretary General's Trust Fund, which is taken directly out of U.N. funding. And we've spoken extensively, right, about how the five veto nations wield a disproportionate amount of power over the UN's proceedings. So the five veto countries, right, literally account for 45% of total UN funding, which means that 190 odd countries account for 55%, five countries account for 45%. I let you do the number crunching to figure out how does the power dynamic work out. Now, further, of these 45 percentage points, 38 of these percentage points are funded by the U.S. and China alone. So we see how they are able to evade international decisions that go against them. They control the money supply of these very institutions. So this is yet another example of how without this structural change in institutional funding, international law will be used merely as a tool of, excuse me, international law will be used merely as a tool of America and China or countries like America and China to preserve their own geopolitical interests and all other financially influential countries that donate a lot to the UN will follow suit. So how can we change this funding structure? Dr. Mark Malik, who was the 2006 Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations under Kofi Annan, 
said that the United Nations and all related international organizations today are plagued with a gross and ineffectual redundancy which hinders swift decision making. The United Nations databases estimate that they have an annual budget of $20 billion, including all relevant programs and organizations, and they employ roughly 75,000 people. Dr. Malik maintains that the employment and funding structure remain highly opaque and rife with bureaucratic processes. He believes that at least $5 billion of the funding received by the UN's related programs can be expended towards more effective and relevant measures associated with the UN directly. If this funding is allocated and reinvested into the UN, and the UN mandates a greater percentage amount of GDP to be contributed by what's known as rapidly developing nations. Uh, for those of you wondering, the IMF defines those as nations that have at least a 3.8% annual growth rate. Then if the, if the UN mandates this greater percentage of you know, GDP to be contributed by these rapidly developing nations, while slashing its financial dependence on countries like France, Russia, China, America, and the UK, it can establish a relatively more equitable playing field for these rapidly developing nations and consequently the rest of the geopolitical community. Now, I just want to touch upon one point pertaining to the International Criminal Court since we mentioned it. While it is independently funded by its member states, its goal to, and its goal is to, and I quote from the website, pursue criminal proceedings against international heads of state or government members here is a pretty alarming statistic. 100% of the cases tried by the International Criminal Court have been against African heads of state. This is owing to multiple reasons. The International Criminal Court can try cases only against its member states. So, fun fact, America and China have not ratified the ICC treaty, so they're not member states. So because they're not member states, the ICC, they're not under the purview of the ICC. So the ICC can't even try cases against America and China, because like we've said, they can only try cases against its member states. America and China are not member states. Go figure. And a third of the 122-odd ICC member states are African. In recent years, both Burundi as well as the Republic Burundi, Burundi, my apologies for pronunciation, but in recent years, both Burundi as well as the Republic of South Africa actually have left the International Criminal Court because they have cited concerns about its anti-African bias. So, but whatever the reasons are, this is yet another example of many that we've discussed throughout this case of there existing a clear asymmetry of power in the international system. One where the biggest and most powerful states are continually exonerated from crimes, while the weakest and most vulnerable are tried and punished. So clearly, as you guys can see, we are in dire need of reforming our geopolitical system. Well, that's all for this episode of A Whole Lot of Grey. And what do you guys think? Are widespread structural and institutional reforms the need of the hour for the UN? Did you agree with my comments? I'd love to hear what you have to say. Please feel free to tweet me at Anish202BLR or DM me on Instagram at Anish202BLR. That's A-N-I-S-H-202BLR. I look forward to hearing from you guys and stay tuned for the next episode. Peace. I'll see you guys later.